0: Monica Hadley, and uh, Caroline won't be joining us today, but tune in next week, for and she'll be back. My guest today is Catherine Stewart, and Catherine is an investigative reporter and author who has covered religious liberty, politics, policy, and education for over a decade. Her latest book, The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rays of Religious Nationalism, is a rare look inside the machinery of the movement that brought Donald Trump to power. Her journalism also appears in the New York Times, Op-Ed, NBC, The New Republic, and the New York Review of Books. Welcome to Writers' Voices, Catherine. Thank you so much for (laughs) inviting me, Monica. It's really great to be in conversation with you. Oh, thank you. Um, Now, this is The Power Worshippers is your second book, and the first one was The Good News Club, about the Christian right's stealth assault on America's children. I'm guessing between that and the power worshipers, you get a lot of pushback.
1: (laughs) You know, I've been following this movement for over a dozen years, and I do get some, you know, pushback from those who agree with the movement's agenda, but even many people who you know, in the dozen plus years of researching this movement and attending right-wing conferences and strategy gatherings um, and, and the like, I've actually had some really interesting, um, made some interesting connections um, and, and have, have had a number of respectful dialogues with uh, folks who um, are even uh, part of the leadership of this movement. Uh, I wrote a piece for the New York Times about one individual who... Um, is the leader of a kind of a, an initiative meant to politicize um, conservative-leaning pastors and get them to cr- turn out their congregations to vote for right-wing political candidates. And look, I'm, I'm critical of the effects of his work on our uh, pluralistic democracy um, and on our, our constitutional republic. But he he read the piece and he reached out to me and said, you know, my mother read your article and she said everything you wrote is true (laughs) so um as and we've had uh, i would say you know very respectful engagement ever since he's invited me to events and um and that's very interesting because here's the thing i'm an investigative reporter at heart i really dig into the facts i'm really careful about how i write about folks and um and I, I make sure that everything can be backed up. You know, everything is sort of factually backed up. So I think that's informed a lot of the work that I've done over
0: the past decade in this area. I just think you're terribly brave because it's – I find it even hard to talk to people with this mindset without getting upset. Yeah, I'm
1: not – you know, the word for it is a funny one because it sounds like one is not scared. And, and you know what? I'm scared about. I'm scared about an American future without democracy. I'm scared of an American future where the the best promises of our democracy, the principles of pluralism and equality, uh, no longer exist. I'm I'm frightened of a, the idea of an America where certain groups are privileged in a law over others and we have courts that are d- determined to strip away the rights of many people, people who fall into disfavored groups, rights that we have, um, you know, fought for and, and have, have justified for, for decades. Um, so I think we should all be concerned. This is really a kind of all hands on deck moment. And I
0: feel like everybody needs to do their part it's i i agree and you're definitely doing your part I, for for many of us i think we just feel like what can we do other than vote which strongly encourage everyone to vote um but what what can we do to change this because it just it's just so heartbreaking to me and there are people that that i you know members of my family that um that have bought into these beliefs and I don't even know how to talk to them. It's interesting. I think (laughs) many of us,
1: myself included also have family members who have different um, political viewpoints and look, we're all entitled to our own viewpoints. We're just not all entitled to our own facts. Um, And, you know, misinformation really works. Propaganda works. It's, um, it's very difficult to kind of, um, Bring people out of these hermetic, fact-free uh, messaging bubbles that are out there, <laughs> trying to capture people and control their political, um, their political actions and their vote. It's very difficult. But you know there are things we can do as individuals, and things we can only do when we join together with others. And look, you got the most important one, which is not just vote, but hold folks in your circle accountable to vote. Um, I used to think of it as like a kind of plus one strategy. Find someone who's kind of on the fence or, frankly, too busy to vote or, you know, couldn't get a babysitter last time or, you know, thought maybe the midterms didn't matter, but they would vote in the presidential. Just somebody who just didn't vote for whatever reason and and hope, get them to vote, get them whatever they need, you know, whether it's information, whether it's, you know, helping them understand that. It's not just about the front runners. Something he might have said in, you know, 1992. It's really about like judges. Is this person going to put, you know, reactionary judges on the courts? Is this person going to, um, you know, uh, propose, you know, policies that you really disagree with? It's who are they? Are they going to surround themselves with kleptocrats and and do sort of nepotistic things, or are they actually going to? surround themselves with um, (laughs) responsible adult professionals who know what they're doing. So that's really important. But then, you know, there's a whole layer of things that we can only do when we join together. And that is invest in all of the features of democracy, defend voting rights, get involved in policy organizations. Um, There's no shortage of avenues for engagement.
0: That's, that is very true. That is very true. I think, you know, maybe I'm feeling especially discouraged right now because of the tragedy that just happened Tuesday in Texas.
1: It is heartbreaking and unbelievably frustrating if you look at the politicians, the list of politicians that took money from the gun lobby and the amounts of money that they were basically given in order to buy their compliance on an industry that. Does not want any, you know, form of meaningful regulation. It's, it's disgraceful. It's really a, a disgrace. And um,
0: yeah, you know, my 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 grandkids are th- that age in elementary school in Texas. Um, I'm so sorry. Their Just mother is a is time. a teacher, elementary school fourth grade elementary school teacher in Texas.
1: It's, uh, it's it's apocalyptic. It's a it's disgraceful. It is, um, you know, a, a movement that that should claim to stand for family values should hang their heads in shame for being allied with politicians that are making the continuation of this type of thing not just possible but basically um, assured to happen. Yeah, yeah. You know, other countries have mentally ill people they have conflicts they other countries that do, do that do not allow have this prolif- proliferation of guns and lack of regulation of guns do not have these types of mass shootings in schools they just simply don't i believe it was australia that had one and then they immediately banned um i have to look up the details of that uh, episode but they banned um you know or or heavily regulated guns and they they never had
0: another one and Scotland too i believe was had a similar maybe it
1: was Scotland i think both yeah, i be, think um, there was i
0: think up. in both but um yeah oh, and and what's you know i don't understand this whole second amendment says well regulated right in the second amendment so how you can say that 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 you shouldn't have regulations because of the second amendment is unfathomable it's right it's right in the wording of the amendment but in your book the power worshipers well why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of the topics that you're covering in this in the book because you are looking at some of the current organizations but you're also going back into history so forth so just talk about the structure of the book a little bit sure you know I've been writing about the rise of the religious right as a
1: political force and its consequences on our democracy. And you know, a lot of times people think of the religious right as a cultural movement. They think about the so-called culture wars, uh, issues like abortion or same sex marriage and things like that, or they think this happened, has to do with opinions of the rank and file. But the uh, religious right as a political force, which um, uh, I like to refer often, which I often refer to as uh, Christian nationalism, It's a political movement. It is an anti-democratic ideology. It's anti-pluralist and anti-equality. Its representatives insist that the foundation of legitimate government is bound up with a reactionary understanding of a particular religion. And it's not just um, an ideology. It's also a a movement, a a way of mobilizing and often manipulating large segments of the population to vote for The political um, candidates that the movement favors, sort of far-right political candidates, and um, they, you know, they aim for a bunch of things. They want to create what is essentially a new elite, a leadership cadre of people who subscribe to illiberal ideologies. They want access to public money. They want political access and influence. And above all, they want power. So I've been writing about this movement for decades and. Um, if you look at the machinery of the movement, I, I think of it as like a watch. I think people don't under, understand that it's not just a bunch of, you know, positions or statements or values. It's really about the infrastructure. Like for decades, this movement has invested in all the features of modern political campaigns, data, media, messaging. They have right-wing policy groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom They have um, right-wing legal advocacy groups like uh, the Federalist Society, which serves to sort of groom and support um, candidates with the right sort of ideological uh, orientation for judicial appointment or um, for judicial office. They have legislative initiatives um, that are um, backed by groups like the Congressional Prayer Caucus and Americans United for Life. They have networking organizations like the Council for National Policy that serve to get the leadership of the movement, the leadership of these different features on the same page. They have um, a vast right-wing messaging sphere, very sophisticated data initiatives, So all kind of working together um, to um, change the direction of our culture, which is really what they want to do. Uh, And they've been... Investing in this infrastructure for a very long time. Now we have to remember, you know, it sounds really big and scary. They represent a minority of the population, right? right. But they punch above their politi- political weight because they're disproportionately organized and networked and, and know that as one of their um, leaders at uh, an event that I've attended said, there's no victory without unity, um, and, and so they act in unity when necessary, whereas those of us sort of who reject the politics of conquest and division, we're like a large, loud, noisy group, right? We can't agree about this or that, or you know, <laughs> sometimes we're just not as organized. We don't have these sort of right-wing policy groups going into churches and saying, you need to vote this way or your congregation, and you got to get your congregants to vote this way or they're going to go to hell, like that kind of thing. We don't have that type of stuff. We have... Obviously, there are a lot of religious moderates and, and uh, progressives, but they tend to not to be candidate-focused. They tend to want to respect the separation of church and state, and many of them sort of really don't want to talk about politics at church, whereas uh, leadership of this movement actually goes into churches in order to do these presentations to get, you know, pastors, because if you can get the pastors, you can get their congregations. So they go in there and they give them these tools to get them to turn out the vote. But I guess my larger point here is they're a minority of the population. Those of us who reject their agenda are a majority, and we really need to act like it. We need to vote as often as they do, if not more. We need to um,
0: act in unity when necessary. Yes, yes. And, And it's tough because we're more free thinkers. You know, we're not we we don't we're not going to fall in line because that's because it's a whole different way of thinking. And it's very hard. People need to understand.
1: But people really need to understand what's at stake. Yes. I mean, think about January 6th. Right. I mean, this represents the fact that there is a political movement in the United States that is hostile to both democracy and the truth. And this movement has a number of roots and alliances with, you know, between their alliances between many of those who stormed the Capitol with racist and white supremacist groups. But no analysis is really complete if it takes, if it you know, fails to understand the role of religious nationalism in, in driving that event and the general assault on our democracy. Really can't understand what happened that day, right, without looking at the powerful role and exploitation of religious rhetoric. And um, and and I think if we don't face that fact, we are going to live in a future world where our democracy is really hollowed out and there's nothing left but a kind of thin veneer that just provides cover for this sort of new elite that wants to take control and at the same time ignore itself into any form of scrutiny.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I have been very aware of the consequences of elections and voting, and particularly judges. For I think I've been talking about it for 20 years, if not more. Um, mm. And and because and because it was obvious, it was plain that to see what was happening if you really looked and looked at it. But it was hard to get people to. To care, and then and now it feels like, is it too late? But I think you're bringing, you're speaking very hopefully, very um, optimistically that it's not too late.
1: I'm, I, you know, I like what <laughs> Stacey Abrams said when she said, I'm not optimistic or pessimistic, I'm determined. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, who knows? You know, maybe um, uh, people will really turn out in large numbers. Uh, in the midterms and really try to do what we can to put a stop to this. I think the scales have fallen from a lot of people's eyes. I think for a long time, people sort of, again, thought of the religious right as just kind of a culture war. Oh, if we compromise on issues like abortion, maybe it will go away and they'll be satisfied. And by the way, you know, speaking of compromise, I mean, there have been like hundreds of laws restricting the uh, right to reproductive access, reproductive care um already implemented in the states but it's not enough you know i attended this year's national pro life summit it's a, an organization that um i'm sorry a, like a conference that happens every year in washington dc after the march for life and i heard um kristan hawkins president of students for life of america one of the sort of big activist groups there she said i'm going to paraphrase her she said you know what we're after um I'm going to tell you what it is. We're after a national, um, uh, like a, a, an amendment, an amendment banning abortion in all 50 states, but but that's going to take some time to set up. So basically they're not going to be comfortable with the overturning of Roe. And then somebody else who I spoke to a young man uh, who's affiliated with the Alliance Defending Freedom, one of the movement's leading legal advocacy groups, like they're sort of a right-wing legal juggernaut they have um you know an annual budget of over 60 million dollars a year and he said pretty much the same thing he said we want a constitutional amendment banning abortion uh you know nationwide but that's going to you know take a bit of time to set up so that's what they're after they also talked about taking the fight to the states so if anybody thinks oh you know it's okay you just ban abortion um, in, you know, gerrymandered states <laughs> yeah. and, uh, or states that don't want it, and women can just, you know, drive up to, it, or girls, <laughs> uh, 15-year-olds, just, you know, cross state lines. It's, it's not going to work that way. It's, um, you know, well, there's already are, been, yeah, there's already
0: been efforts to try and prevent that from happening, too, from allowing people to leave the state. It's like...
1: Amazing. We have, like, an intriguing parallel with the fugitive slave law, if you really think about it. Um, yeah. Where, you know, when you have, you know, fundamental rights, rights that were considered fundamental, you know, in one state are, are completely denied in another, and you have people uh, crossing state lines in order to access those rights, and then you, you're going to end up with bounty hunters who are going to be trying to pursue them, you know, and, and <laughs> yeah. drive them back to face the consequences. It's really disgusting.
0: Yeah, it I is. mean, <laughs>
1: women will die. You know, I mean, this is a, a very personal thing. And I sort of tucked it into the back of one of the later chapters of the power worshippers. But I nearly died during um, a miscarriage and landed in a Catholic hospital because I was bleeding out, bleeding to death. And um, and it, they delayed uh, giving me the abortion I needed to save my life. And I was really on the edge. I lost um, nearly 40% of my blood uh, before I was able to access the abortion that I needed to save my life. This was, um, and when I got got home, I mean, my husband and I were trying for a second child. Um, you know, I had two miscarriages between my two kids, and this was the second one, and it went really, really badly. This is something you really don't hear the sort of so-called pro-life movement talk about, the anti-choice movement talk about they don't talk about the fact that childbirth and pregnancy is dangerous. One, I think it's 10 to 15% of known uh, pregnancies and in miscarriage. And some number of those are going to require um, medical care, medical treatment so that the women don't get, or girls, whatever, don't get sepsis or hemorrhage or bleed out or have some other kind of health complication. Um, and, you know, of, uh, Women, you know, in addition to the women who will die trying to self-abort or or or, or do or die in childbirth as a consequence of an, an or, or as another because of some other reason placenta previa or whatever, you know, there are all these complications in pregnancy that mandate um, miscarriage care or uh, abortion care in order to save a woman's life or health. Um, This law is going to mean that women will die. I would have died had I not been able to access finally an abortion, delayed, unfortunately, but finally I was able to access that abortion, and that saved my life. Um, If I were living in a state, you know, um, where abortion is prohibited, we're already seeing that a lot of doctors are declining to provide miscarriage care or turning women away from hospitals because they don't want to get in trouble. I read oh,
0: recently yeah. of, um, a Twitter thread of a, a woman who, in in a situation similar situation, you know, was miscarried, had a partial miscarriage, needed um, a drug to f- complete mm-hmm. it, and and mm-hmm. she, you know she wanted this child. It wasn't <laughs> anyway. And and the pharmacies wouldn't fill the prescription because, and this was in Texas, they were afraid of being um, prosecuted prosecuted for yeah assisting to in providing an abortion and and if she didn't get it she could have died fortunately the yeah. doctor really went to bat for her and she was able to access the medication eventually but why but she's already under such horrible strain and going through oh, one of the worst awful. things of her life it's and then awful. have to deal with that yeah it's awful it's <laughs> You are listening to Writers' Voices, and our guest today is Catherine Stewart, author of *The Power Worshippers: Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism*. And I really appreciate that you refer to it as religious nationalism, um, because how we talk about these things can influence how people think about them. You know, what we name what we name them can influence how people think of it.
1: That's absolutely true. I mean, I want to point out that I think most American Christians reject the politics of conquest and division that this movement represents. There are many, many religious leaders who are organizing to try to meet the threat. Um, I'm just going to throw some names of organizations out there, but there are so many others. I mean, if you look at um, groups like Red Letter Christians or a group called Christians Against Christian Nationalism a uh, project of, I believe, the Baptist Joint Committee. Vote, groups like Vote Common Good, uh, and there's so many others. And then there are large numbers of pastors who are just very concerned about it, but simply don't know what to do. And I've spoken with many of them. They're not sort of who are not particularly well networked uh, in their opposition because they're not accustomed to dealing with politics. They respect the separation of church and state, um, they respect the basis for their tax privileges, which uh, religions have. As you know, religions have tax privileges and benefits that other non-religious nonprofits don't have. And I think most uh, mainline, many mainline um, uh, uh, and other pastors want to respect that. They want to do the right thing, you know. But um, it's, it's, uh, you know, there is a movement in our midst that's exploiting religion for political purposes. And If we look at other countries like, you know, like Russia, we look at Putin or Orban in Hungary or Erdogan in Turkey or leaders of, you know, countries like Iran, when these leaders bind themselves to reactionary religious authorities in order to consolidate the more authoritarian and often kleptocratic nepotistic form of political power, we rightly recognize this as religious nationalism. And that's what we're seeing um, some of our unfortunately some of our far right leaders do we certainly saw it um, during our last presidency where somebody who could not be considered remotely to be a sort of a paragon of family values bound himself to um, reactionary religious leaders in order to consolidate his own power
0: you know that's something I wanted to, to talk to you about um, I, It's, it's well there's two things one is This, this movement and these, this political movement, part of why they're able to gain strength is they don't play by the same rules as the rest of us. Mm. Um, Mm. One of them being use of non-tax, you know, of tax-free, um, organizations which are not supposed to be conducting political, um, you know, are not supposed to be involved in politics. That's the separation of church and mm-hmm. state. It's part of the rules. If you, mm-hmm. if an entity mm-hmm. like, like I donate to the, um, like ACLU, for example, and if it's their lobbying organis part, it's not deductible to me, you know, mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. like that. But, and, and so they, they break those rules all the time and, and don't seem and, and seem to be able to get away with it. I remember um, there was this big controversy during Obama's presidency where the IRS got really called on the carpet for um, for sort of s- investigating the 501c3 nonprofit deductible nonprofit applications of entities that were coming from. Um, <laughs> from the right basically and and how horrible this was except that they're actually that was actually their job that's actually the job of the mm-hmm. IRS is to make sure that organizations that were being set up for political purposes weren't getting 501c3 status and they got crucified mm-hmm. for doing that i never really understood that you know, there's a 2007 initiative led by
1: Republican-led, led by uh, Charles Graffley. You know, um, and and he and a bunch of other Republican uh, leaders were looking at a bunch of these groups, like um, they were looking at Paula White's ministry, Creflo Dollar. They were looking at um, oh, a bunch of others that we you know have heard of these very you know political pastors who are also. Um, very, uh, some of them owned airplanes, multiple homes, luxury homes, um, airplane leasing companies, all of it tax-free. And I, they were sort of looking at this group and thinking, wh- why are these? Why are we giving a, a tra- tax-free status to an airplane leasing? You know, this pastor owns an airplane leasing company. Why is all that tax-free? And um, the pastors, there were six or seven of them, there was such a hue and cry that they said, oh, we're being persecuted for our religion. This is like sort of the thing they go to all the time. We're being persecuted. We're the most persecuted group in society. And this group, uh, Senate, uh, the, uh, it was in like an investigation committee. They sort of backed off. And they said, okay, you guys need to self-police. Oh, brother. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. Seems to have gone very well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So. So, and then they be, and then they make themselves out to be the victims. But the other thing that I was going to bring up was you you mentioned our last president being embraced by this, the, you know, right-wing Christian nationalists, even though ostensibly he was as far from living a life of Christian values as anybody possibly could. And... um. And whereas Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden are both people of faith who have lived their faith for their entire lives and lived lives way more in accordance with biblical principles. And this is not the first time that this has happened. Flashback, and you do talk about this in the book, to um, 1980. Reagan, who, I mean, <laughs> he was not a religious person. He was not someone whose life exhibited Christian principles. And Carter, who absolutely was. And yet the, the same group embraced Reagan. Yeah, it's really interesting when we look at Trump, certainly we can see that
1: you know part of it was transactional i think there are two features that really mattered with trump number one he threw open the doors to this movement it was a, it was a deal he said i was at this meeting where he stands on the stage it was a, i think a road to majority meeting gathering of key strategists and um uh, and activists and affiliated politicians and he holds up a list of of justices like like a, like shiny new bonds and he said I'm going to appoint justices from the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court from this list, and these judges are all pro-life. And so abortion occupies this tremendous, you know, um, uh, symbolic, uh, uh, it uh, has tremendous symbolic concerns and utility for this movement, because they know if you can get people to vote on a single issue, you can control their vote. So he offered them pro-life justices. He um, said he was going to bring in Mike Pence as his number two. And he started this, what they call evangelical advisory force. He gave, he gave them all of the, and basically promises to um, all the policies they want. You know, in advance of 2016, I was at another strategy meeting, and one of the speakers stood up and said, this election is about judges, judges, judges. So he gave them political access, access to public money, um, policies that privilege their religion. Um, and, and the like. But so beyond the transactional p- part of it, I think there's something about Trump's character as a rule breaker that appeals to the authoritarian impulses of the leadership. They don't believe in pluralistic democracy with pr- rooted in the con- like principles of equality. They don't believe in one person, one vote. Um, or they don't believe in that people who, you know, that, that, that people in, in voting at all. I mean, just look at the sort of, you know, the casting doubt uh, and, and, and contempt on the idea of the consequences of an election, whose, whose consequences they don't like. They, they, don't, they don't believe in democracy at all. So, he like, he represents the sort of, he has appealed the authoritarian, you know. He's willing to break the rules and, and, and disrespect the law. Um, to fight for his tribe, right? Um, so I think there's something, and they often referred to him as a king, like a biblical king, like King Cyrus, a um, an imperfect vessel through whom God chose to enact his will. But see, in order to, you know, elect a sort of, quote, king of America, like an authoritarian ruler who's going to, you know, privilege one group over others in society and uh, basically, you know, bring back sort of, Hierarchies of value based on religion, um, gender, sexual orientation, alike—you're going to need to basically break democracy, and um, and that's the appeal of
0: an authoritarian leader um,
1: like Trump.
0: Right. And we can't let it happen. Anyway, <laughs> that's <is> true. <laughs> Why don't you read um, a little bit from the power worshippers?
1: Okay, great. Thank you so much. I'm going to read from the introduction. Um, uh, This is not a book I could have imagined writing a dozen years ago.
0: Mm.
1: When an older couple from another town attempted to set up and lead a Bible club at my daughter's public elementary school in Santa Barbara, California in 2009, they might as well have been alien visitors showing up at a beach party. The purpose of the club was to convince children as young as five that they would burn for an eternity if they failed to conform to a strict interpretation of the Christian faith. Club's organizers were offered free and better space in the evangelical church next door to our school, but they refused it. They insisted on holding the club in the public school because they knew the kids would think the message was coming from the school. They referred to our public school as their mission field and our children as a harvest. I thought their plan was outrageously inappropriate in our religiously diverse public school. I also thought it was a fake occurrence. They seemed completely out of place in the sunny land of stand-up paddle boarders and open-air wine tastings. In my eyes, they came out of the American past, not the future. I was quite wrong about that. Sometimes it takes a while to realize what is happening in your own backyard. As I researched the group behind these kindergarten missionaries, I saw that they were part of a national network of clubs. I soon discovered that this network was itself just one of many initiatives to insert reactionary religion into public schools across the country. Then I realized that these initiatives were the fruit of a nationally coordinated effort not merely to convert other people's children in the classroom, but to undermine public education altogether. Belatedly, I understood that the conflict they provoked in our local community, I was hardly the only parent who found their presence in the public school alarming, was not an unintended consequence of their activity. It was of a piece with their plan to destroy confidence in our system of education and make way for a system of religious education more to their liking. In 2012, I published what I had learned about the topic in my book, The Good News Club. As I was completing that project, I realized I had latched onto one aspect of a much larger, more important phenomenon in American political culture. The drive to end public education as we know it is just part of a political movement that seeks to transform defining institutions of democracy in America. The movement pretends to represent the past and stand for old traditions, but in reality, it is a creature of present circumstances and is organized around a vision for for the future that most Americans would find abhorrent. The past 10 years, I've been attending conferences, gatherings, and strategy meetings of the activists powering this movement I have sat down for coffee with, quote, ex-gay pastors determined to mobilize a, quote, pro-family vote. I have exchanged emails late into the night with men and women who have dedicated their lives to the goal of refounding the United States according to biblical law. I have walked alongside young women as they marched for, quote, life and followed them into seminar rooms where they received training in political messaging and strategy. Along the way, I have made some friends and learned something like a new language. I no longer see members of this movement as alien visitors under the California sun. I know them to be very much a part of modern America, and that alarms me all the more. Now and then, I wish I could go back to those happy afternoons on the California coast, where none of this would have seemed worthy of placing before the public. But I can't so easily forget what I've learned Anyone who cares what is happening in American politics today needs to unknow about this movement and its people. Their issues, the overwhelming preoccupation with sexual order, the determination to unite the nation around a single religious identity, the conviction that they are fighting for salvation against forces of darkness, have come to define the effort that has transformed the political landscape and shaken the foundations upon which lay our democratic norms and institutions. This is the movement responsible for the election of the 45th president of the United States, and it now determines the future of the Republican Party. It is the change that we have been watching, some with joy, others in disbelief, others in denial, and it isn't going away anytime soon. I don't doubt that many of the people I have met on my journey meanwhile, I have seen them showing kindness to friends and strangers with equal conviction. And I know that among them are many generous spirits, but I am convinced that they are dead wrong about the effect of their work on the future of the American Republic. They may believe sincerely in the righteousness of their cause and want as much as anyone to build a secure and prosperous America. But that just makes their story the subject of this book, An
0: American Tragedy. And I can stop there. Thank you and that was Catherine Stewart reading from The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. One of the sections of the book that um, I found most intriguing, um, you're going further back in history um, and, and pointing out that what we're seeing now, this isn't the first time that something That religious nationalism has attempted to take over um, the U.S. government. And also that a lot of the claims that are made about the founding, uh, you know, the United States being founded as a Christian nation are completely wrong. (laughs) They're just not true. Do you want to talk about those two things? There's so much to say. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) One of the reasons, there's so much to say on there. I'll just talk about a couple of, to address your first point, I want to um, say that um, one fundamental reason, a historical reason why America has had so much trouble escaping its racist past is that many of the theologians one of the, you know, this is religious nationalism in America, so there's, it's sort of, you know, there's theologians who helped shape and continue to guide the movement, and they are the direct intellectual descendants, or many of them are the direct intellectual descendants of America's 19th century pro slavery theologians and their 20th century segregationist successors, so the idea of America as an authentically Christian nation ordered according to allegedly biblical principles under hierarchies ordained by God is the kind of iron thread that binds today um, today's Christian nationalist theologians with yesterday's segregationist ideologues. So in the book, I go into the sort of just dis- the different orientations between the pro-slavery theologians and the, um, the uh, theologians who supported um, uh, uh, emancipation. I discuss the contributions of a dozen theologians who supported emancipation, who were deeply abhorrent to the, you know, the cause of slavery. They, um, uh, you know, include people like Wilberforce, Aiden Ballou, uh, Charles Grandison Finney. There's so many others. Um, but they tended to be in their time, as Frederick Douglass said, um, speaking from, quote, humble pulpit. They, They really didn't have the money behind them. And he said, you know, he said it was the, the the well-funded preachers he called them the five thousand dollar divines these are the people who were sort of you know um leading congregations that were you know much more well-funded he said they were especially in the south on the side of slaveholder um and either had made their peace with slavery or at least sort of um act some some of them actively defended it so you know people like um james Henry thornwell who was the leader in the southern presbyterian church You know, he said the parties uh, in this conflict are – I'm paraphrasing here a little bit. He said the parties in this conflict are between um, uh, atheists, socialist, communists on the one side, and he's referring to the um, – Abolitionists. Against slavery. Yeah. Yeah, abolitionists, he said, and friends of order and regulated freedom on the other. And he is saying friends of order and regulated freedom are on the side of the slaveholders. So it's yeah. this idea of, you know, America – so that's, you know, one one of the things. There's a kind of through line between that sort of reactionary religion, the idea of hierarchies ordained by God, um, with that
0: sort of strand of American history and what we're seeing today. I was surprised to read how many religious leaders, even in the North, supported slavery. You know, we had – so true. This, many uh, did. Yeah, we oh, have yeah. this idea. Now, I think there were certainly groups – Quakers, for example, were always um, – anti-slavery i believe and there were other many other groups, groups were anti-slavery yeah. i i mean
1: I, let's not forget that so go
0: on yeah i was gonna say i shouldn't i shouldn't have been that surprised because there's a family story of my my mother caroline's her her mother's grandfather i think um who mm-hmm. left his, or maybe no her father's grandfather no her excuse me Her mother's, yeah, her mother's grandfather, who, who, um, basically left the church that he was a member of. And this would have been in Ohio or Iowa, because they moved from Ohio to Iowa at one point. But that he, he left the church he was a member of because they, he was abolitionist and they were not. And, um, you know, joined some other church. And on his deathbed, his sister asked him if, um, to repent to repent and he, and, you know, go back to be accepted back into that church. And he said, Nope, not doing it. <laughs> That's, I do, yeah, really I do not regret it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there were uh,
1: theologians from the North who um, supported that. On the other hand, there were others who were allied with um, the cause of abolition. And we can't forget that there were riots in, in Boston when slave catchers would come up and try and, um, you know uh uh, uh uh kidnap formerly enslaved people who had who had uh who had escaped and um the boston Vigilance committee was a an organization um that formed to protect um folks uh who had escaped enslavement and was allied with uh some uh theologians as well so there, there, it was a complicated picture, but what we do see is this sort of um, this reactionary religion—the idea of bi- hierarchies ordained by God, uh, an emphasis on on obedience. That strand of reactionary religion um, was um, on the side of slavery, and then also segregation. If you look at segregation, it's like Bob Jones—he too, sort of, you know, said that this is. Um, uh you know you know claimed to be on the side of order and regular you know gods he called slavery god's established order wow.
0: and so. um you you wrote you wrote about how thomas jefferson um famously predicted all americans would shortly shortly convert to unitarianism um and that, Boy, yeah, and, and Thomas Paine went even further, suggesting they would abandon all traditional religion. So, you know, now these people are being held out as paragons of Christianity or something. I don't know. It's like, but I before before we run out of time, Catherine, I do want to talk to you a little bit more about the writing process of the book, since we usually discuss quite a bit about writing as well here. When when you started, how long did you work on this book? Well,
1: this book is really the culmination of 10 years of research. I did publish The Good News Club in that time. But as I was writing The Good News Club, I realized that, you know, Good News Clubs are just one small part of a much larger attack on public education as a sort of pillar of, of democracy and the attack on public education was just one small part of a much larger assault on on, uh, on democracy itself. So even as I was writing um, The Good News Club, I recognized that I had to um, continue writing on this topic and, and, and show the larger picture.
0: And during that whole time, were you planning for it to be a book or were you planning to publish articles, which I'm sure you did along the way as well? Um, or did you always know that the end goal was this book? You know, it's funny. I It was life. I,
1: I, I was, during that period, a lot of stuff happened. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> you know, raising kids. We were living with my mom, who was disabled, um, who lived with us in last years of her life and needed assistance with every activity of daily living. So um, while she, you know, um, was with us, um, that, sort of, I couldn't sort of wrap my head around structuring another book. I just continued to write articles and do research. And, you know, I could kind of manage it all from home with my mom and my kids. And it was actually a very sweet period of time. And, um, you know, I I miss that time in in so many ways. I miss her, but um, then she, um, it's very personal. She died, unfortunately, but um, she was older. and, And then, and it was at that point that I just thought, okay, now you can sort of figure out how to structure this and pull it together in, in a larger book. Um, and and so that's that's
0: what I did at that point. Now it won an award. And that was about that was about
1: oh, you think that was about eighteen months before. Let's see, so I guess it took I guess it
0: took about eighteen months to write and then just a little while longer for it to come out. So. Wow. And it came yeah. out in hardcover in twenty twenty? that 2020, and then it just came out in paperback. Right, just came out in paperback. And um, what kind of what kind of um, response have you gotten from readers, like when it came out? You know, I think it's
1: I I I communicate constantly with people who find the book, and um, it speaks to them. It helps them understand um, the political moment. Um, that were in, uh, many people uh, that I communicate with come from this movement um, and want to share their personal stories. And that's very poignant. Um, so, you know, I, I have to say the, the response has been overwhelmingly very positive. Mm, I'm glad. <laughs> Although people are deeply concerned about the oh yeah the,
0: um, effects of this movement. Yeah. Yeah. Um... So once you decided, you know, this was a book and you were um you know in that 18 month period how did you find your publisher?
1: Well, uh through my agent um who is just terrific. He sent it out to his contacts and um I was lucky enough to um work at Bloomsbury with Anton Mueller, who is fantastic. He's so smart. (laughs) Here's the funny thing. He would come back with, he would come back with stuff and I would think, you know, I'd read his comments. I'd be like, no, he's wrong about that. I don't need to do that. No, it's good enough as it is. And and he was was always right. He was always like, we really, we fought over the introduction because I wanted to sort of have a more like reported introduction, something like a moment in my reporting and have that be the introduction to the book. And he said, no, you need a big picture. You need, like, big picture here. And and it was more work to put together. And, you know, for me, the, like, first-person reporting is just, like, to me, that's the fun stuff. It's like, oh, I went to this place and I talked to these people and this is what happened, this is what they said. It's really colorful and and fun, you know. But I needed to do the work to pull together, like, a – um, a more like a, an overview um,
0: and to sort of like nail down that language and that was harder. So I resisted it for a while, but he was right. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's true because having that gives, or just it's a story. It gives a little story to it too. And we are drawn in by story and each of yeah, your, ch- and he said be personal. Yeah. And yes. Yeah. 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 yeah and and you've done that in other parts of the book too now when you're going to some of these events these conferences and so forth i know that the first one that you write about you're with you have sort of an ally um that you're with yeah do you did you usually do that have somebody there because i would just be i would just be so feel like i was so Surrounded by the enemy, kind of. <laughs> in these, if I went no. to some of these things, well, you
1: know, a lot of the folks that are in the movement who go to these these events, they're 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 lovely people. A lot of them, they love their children. They appear to care about their communities. and they really do feel like they're doing what's best for our country. Um, and you know, when you talk to people as individuals, you can always find common ground right. on uh, any number of topics. But unfortunately the 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 all those good efforts are, you know, acting in service of an agenda that's brought us to a, a really perilous moment in our democracy that's dividing Americans and leaving people sort of dehumanize one another and, and view one another not as fellow Americans with different have, who happen to have a different political point of view, but as the enemy or literally demonic. Well, I mean, there's a lot of dehumanizing othering language out there and uh, and I think that's incredibly dangerous, so I typically go to things just on my own, which I'm comfortable doing. I use my own name I don't hide you know um who i am um but you know i don't i just go as i'm not affiliated with a newspaper so mm. I don't need to sort of announce announce myself as a in that way I just kind of go and and keep my try to keep my my ears open. I think listening is underrated.
0: Ah, that's, I like that. <laughs> well, we are about out of time. Do you have um, anything that you would like to say that I didn't ask you about? Well, I,
1: well, I just want to thank you so much for um, this uh, this conversation. It's, it's really been terrific. And um, if anybody is on Twitter and cares to follow me, um, my handle is Kath S Stewart. That's K A T H S S T E W A R T. And the book is *The Power Worshipers: Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism*. And I'm just really grateful to all of you for listening. And and thanks to you so much, Monica, for hosting
0: this
1: conversation.
0: Thank you, Catherine. And we always end with the quote. And you had you gave a quote from Stacy Abrams that I. Um, that I liked earlier. So I thought we'll we'll finish with another quote from her. We are strongest when we see the most vulnerable in our society, bear witness to their struggles, and then work to create systems to make it better. Great. (laughs) Thank you, Catherine, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices.